0: This is a Vault Studios production.
1: One week into the Tex McIver trial, and the only witness to the shooting of Diane McIver, the McIver's close friend, Danny Joe Carter, is about to take the stand. I was upset. I was
2: angry. I was in there all by myself and found out that my best friend died, and I was all by myself. I was scared. I didn't like being down there in
3: that building at
2: Nobody was around there. I, was, I mean, I was totally
3: alone. In her testimony, she didn't necessarily um, exonerate, in a sense, Tex. She just testified about what happened.
1: I'm Caitlin Ross. This is Intent, the Tex McIver case, Chapter 5.
4: Jeff, unless Tex MacGyver chooses to take the stand in this trial, this will be our only first hand account of the shooting and the death of Diane MacGyver. During the shooting, Danny Joe Carter, friend of Diane MacGyver, was in the driver's seat.
1: Before, Before Danny MacGyver Joe Carter the takes the stand in Tex McIver's murder trial, the public hasn't heard much at all from the MacGyver's close friend. She'd stayed out of the media spotlight for the most part, so, when she's finally sworn in, the crowd in the courtroom is ready to hear, for the first time, Danny Joe's full account of what happened the night of Diane McIver's death. After a few minutes of questions about Danny Joe's background and work history, Fulton County Assistant District Attorney Clint Rucker asks Danny Joe about her friendship with the McIvers. And uh, can you tell the jurors, um, when
5: did you become acquainted with? Um, um, Diane Diver and um, how you became
0: acquainted.
2: I was working at a salon at Northlake, and uh, her office was in Conyers. And um, I was still in school at the time, and I, I worked there during the week. And uh, one of the girls asked me if I would take this client of hers that she'd gotten that wanted to come in late. And I didn't like to go in early and worked late, so I started doing Diane's nails 40, 41 years ago.
5: Now, um, can you help the jurors understand a little bit about um, her personality? How would you characterize it?
2: Well, she was a lot of fun. She was intense. She played hard and she... Um, But she could be she could be difficult. She because she was very pragmatic about appointments, times, things that you did, um, how you were eating, um, how you she was
1: she could be difficult. Okay. Along with being very loving, Rucker then asked Danny Joe about getting to know the defendant, Tex McIver. Danny Jo says she met Tex at a party back in 2000, before he was married to Diane. It was the night of Tex and Diane's first date. The questions continue. When it came to Diane's finances, um, was she a private
2: person about those things, or would she share her financial situations with you? No, she pretty much kept them private.
5: She kept them private? Did you have any idea how much money Diane had?
2: No. Um,
5: and uh, will she share the intimate details about her finances with the defendant? Do you want anything about his finances?
1: No. Finally, the prosecution begins to ask Danny Joe about September of 2016 and the days before Diane was killed, the trip to the McIvers' Putnam County ranch.
2: Well, I was driving... Uh, Diane was probably sitting in the front seat, and Texas probably in the— I don't don't remember driving down there if one or— but probably Diane was sitting in the front, because we were always talking.
5: Okay. Are you pretty sure that you drove down there?
2: I'm positive I drove down
5: there. Okay. And why did you drive?
1: Because they had been drinking wine.
5: Because they had been drinking wine? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Rucker then hones in on September 25th, Sunday, the day Diane was shot and killed. Diane and Tex went to play golf, and Danny Joe stayed behind. They all met back up around 6 that evening before leaving to head back to Atlanta with a plan to stop for dinner at Longhorn Steakhouse.
5: On the way to Longhorn, was there any drinking allowed?
1: Yes, there was a
2: to-go, a roadie and and a Yeti. Um... I don't know what you call those things the silver tumbler like with the top on it
5: and what was in it red wine and who was drinking the red wine
2: they were sharing it back and forth
5: and um, by sharing it back and forth they would pass it back and forth you mean yes how long does it take to get from the ranch in putnam county to the longhorn
2: about an hour
5: And uh, can you tell the jury, was there drinking going on during that entire trip? How would you describe it? What do you remember?
2: I don't really remember how many times it went back and forth, but they were drinking it on the way there.
5: Okay.
1: Once they arrived at the restaurant, Danny Joe testifies they had to wait for a table. I said, let's go to the bar and get a drink.
2: So we went to the bar and and, um, they ordered a glass of wine and I got water.
5: You had water?
1: Yes. Once the table was ready, they met another friend for dinner.
5: So what happened um, when the group got up to leave? Did you all get up to leave together? Yes. And so where did you go? Out to the parking lot. What happened once you got out into the parking lot?
2: I got into the driver's side, and Diane got into the front passenger side. Okay.
5: And can you tell the jury, was there some conversation about that arrangement before you got into the vehicle? Because you didn't drive to the restaurant, correct? No. So was there some conversation about the fact that you were going to drive back to Atlanta?
2: Mm-hmm. I think Diane just handed me the keys. When we left the ranch, I think she said, I'll drive to the restaurant. And you can drive from there.
5: Um, in your opinion, at the time that you all, at the time that you all got to the vehicle, did Diane appear to be intoxicated? No. Um, how about the
2: defendant? No.
5: Was there any additional drinking from the Yeti that was in the car on the way to Atlanta?
2: I don't believe there was.
5: How long do you think it took for you to get back downtown?
1: Just somewhere around 20 minutes. As Rucker focuses on those final minutes of Diane's life. Danny Joe moves from the witness stand to another seat, a recreation of her position in the SUV so that jurors can see clearly how things played out that night. Danny Joe then walks jurors through what happened as she and Diane and Tex made their way off of the interstate and through the streets of Atlanta. Tex asked
2: Diane, he said, darling, will you hand me my gun? And so she just reached over and got it and I'm sitting here with both of my hands on and shut the console and handed it to him.
5: And when you were at the red light, can you tell the jurors what happened?
2: Well, we were sitting at the light and I hear click click click. And I looked at Diane and asked her what she was doing. She said I'm just making sure the door's locked. And I heard a big boom. And I didn't know what it was, I thought there was an explosion somewhere. And I saw a puff of smoke and I could see his hand and I could see the top of the gun, I could see part of the gun, his hands, and some of the bag. And
5: what happened next?
2: She said, text she shot me.
5: Did he say anything?
2: No, I thought it was a joke. And then I realized it wasn't. And then I knew that I had to To get to the nearest emergency room. I asked Tex where the closest emergency room was.
1: Danny Joe testifies that Diane was breathing hard and panicking at that point. From the back seat, she says Tex leaned forward and held Diane's head. He told Danny Joe his wife was still breathing.
5: And I know I asked you whether or not you ever saw the defendant call 911. Did you ever see him make any phone calls during the trip to the hospital?
2: No, I did not.
5: Um, to include, he did not call ahead to Emory and say, hey, we're on the way?
2: No.
5: Now, did he ever give you an explanation about why he chose to go to Emory?
1: Not me. Rucker then asks Danny Joe about what happened as they arrived at the hospital. She says Tex got out of the car and called for help.
5: You saw um, Diane guy removed from the vehicle? Yes. Okay. And can you tell the jurors what happened Next.
2: They took her, I I think it was in a wheelchair, um, into the hospital and I sat there in the car for just a second and I guess I just kind of switched off for a moment because it's like, well, I got here. And uh, the valet was knocking on the window and said he could take the car.
1: Danny Jo then describes her movements inside the hospital finding texts inside near an emergency bay where Diane was at the time, then relocating to a small waiting room.
5: So can you tell the jurors what happened when you were in the room um, and it was just you and the defendant?
2: He said something about being recalling being in Vietnam and pulling guys that were wounded out.
5: What was his demeanor like at this time?
2: Pretty calm.
5: How about your demeanor?
2: I was calm, but I, because I didn't want to panic, and I was afraid once I started, it wouldn't stop.
1: Danny Jo testifies that she found Diane's ID after searching through her purse, then found her insurance card. She took them to hospital staff, then returned to the small waiting room.
5: And anybody else in the room except you two? No. So what happened next?
1: He asked me
2: to, he said I need my phone. It's in the cart on the charger.
5: He said that to you? Yes. And so did you know where to go into the car to find the phone?
2: I knew that it was in the back seat on the charger.
1: Danny Jo tells the courtroom she went out to the valet and asked for the phone from the car.
5: So at this point, how long do you think you've been at the hospital?
2: 15 or 20 minutes.
5: And um, when you got the phone back from the valet, what did you do?
2: I went back to the room, the little waiting room, to give him the phone.
5: Was he still there? Yes. Was there anyone else in the room besides you, too? No. Did you actually hand him the phone? I did. And can you tell the jurors what happened next? Well, Keep your voice up. Okay.
2: He was sitting down in that seat where I pointed to earlier, and I was standing up and I handed him the phone. And he took the phone and he started scrolling and he said, I know this doesn't look good. And I knew he was calling his attorney because that's what attorneys do.
1: After a brief objection from the defense, Rucker continues. Um, Let me ask you this, did an attorney show up? Yes. Who showed up? Steve Maples.
5: And did you know Steve Maples? I did. What did you know him to do as a profession?
2: He was an
1: attorney.
5: And did you know what kind of law Steve Maples actually practiced?
1: Criminal. Rucker focuses on the next critical exchange when, according to Danny Joe, Tex seems to suggest that she say something different from what actually happened.
5: And he said, I know... What did he say?
1: I know this doesn't look good.
5: Then what's the next thing that happened?
2: <clears throat> he looked up. And didn't look at me, but looked past me and said, me And said, "I don't trust these guys." I was Danny Joe. I hate to see you get wrapped up in this. I've seen how these things can go down.
0: Yep.
2: You just need to, um, you just need to say you came down here as a friend of the family.
1: Rucker asked Danny Joe what she said in response to Texas' suggestion.
2: I leaned down and said, Tex, I just drove you into the emergency room.
5: And why did you tell him that?
2: Well, because if I just drove down there as a friend of the family, there was no other reason. There was no reason for me to be down at Emory Hospital in Decatur, where I never go with no car at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night, you know, 15 minutes after his wife had been shot. How was I supposed to explain that?
5: When well, you told him that, or what did you tell him, exactly?
2: I said, Tex, I just drove you into the emergency room.
5: And then did he say something in response to that?
2: He looked at me and he says, well, they don't know that.
5: And so what did you say?
2: Well, that that took my breath away.
5: And so then what did you say back to him?
2: I said, I can't lie.
5: And then what happened?
2: He said, oh, I'm not asking you to do that. Then what happened? I really don't remember exactly what happened right after that. I don't remember if I backed out of the room or if I went to the get some water. But <clears throat> I was—I don't—I can't remember.
5: What
2: happened? That really took me aback.
1: Danny Jo says after that conversation with Tex, she moved to another waiting room and then met with a chaplain. Later that night, with Diane McIver still in surgery, investigators from the Atlanta Police Department arrived. At one point, Diane's surgeon, Dr. Suzanne Hardy, sat down with Tex and updated him on Diane's condition. Danny Joe says they were all listening in. She
2: said that her heart was strong and that um, there was a sack that's around your heart, that it had some fluid in it, and that it wouldn't have any fluid in it if it hadn't been injured somehow. She never said the bullet hit her heart, but there was a nick out of her spleen, which was making—there was a lot of blood loss. And um, that—but she said her heart was strong, and that her—that um, she spoke. And um, I was very encouraged. Because. Okay. Okay. She's been unconscious.
5: Last time you saw her, she was unconscious. Yes. And did Dr. Hardy tell you the words that Diane McGavrey spoke? She said. Or did you hear her tell? Because she was talking.
2: She's talking to everybody in the room. She was talking to Tex, but everybody could hear her. And what did she say? She said that Diane said it was an accident. And then she said my tummy hurt, and she, then she told us that she intubated her.
1: As Rucker leads her through the rest of that night, we learned that she left the hospital with investigators and spent the early morning hours being interviewed by police.
5: And when you got in the car with the police officers, where did you go?
1: Well,
2: first we, we drove the route. They wanted to know exactly where we, where we went
5: And did you show them the route? I did. Um, Did you show them the intersections where you believe the actual shooting occurred? I did. And after you showed them the route, what happened next?
2: They took me downtown to the police headquarters. And and what happened? They took me into an interrogation room, the two that drove me down there, and they sat with me for a minute, and one of them said that he was expecting a phone call to please excuse him if he answered it. Okay.
5: And then, can you tell the jurors, um, were you interviewed at that time?
2: Not, they started They started asking me a few questions, um, but then he got his phone call and, or text or whatever, and left the room. And then they both left the room.
5: And so can you tell the jury what happened while you were there in the room?
2: I got a text. My phone would text. It, I couldn't talk on it, but my husband sent me a text that said Diane
1: had died. Rucker asks Danny Joe about being at the police station, alone and then learning about Diane's death. I was, I was
2: upset, I was angry. Um, I was in there all by myself and found out that my best friend died and I was all by myself. I was scared. I didn't like being down there in that building. Nobody was around there, I I mean, I was
1: totally alone. The next day, Bruce Harvey with Texas defense team takes over and during his cross-examination of Danny Joe, leads her through a long, detailed description of her final trip to the McIver Ranch with both Tex and Diane.
6: It's another what you would describe as a wonderful day down at the ranch. Yes. I, it was, again, nothing, nothing, nothing that indicated to you was there, that this was a day that was any different than any other day that you had been down at the ranch? Correct. Okay.
1: The testimony goes on for hours, Danny Joe calmly answering Harvey's questions about what appeared to be the McIvers' loving marriage, what they all did and talked about that weekend. And then ultimately, he arrives at the minutes leading up to the shooting, just as Danny Joe took the exit off the interstate,
6: and that's when he says, "Darlin', that word again, darling. This is a bad area. I wish you hadn't have done this, girl." Speaking to both of you.
2: Right? Yeah. Now he said, "Girls."
6: Girls. Would you hand me my gun? Darwin, would you hand me my gun?
1: Yes. And then finally, he asks about the moment the gun went off.
6: That was when you heard the boom. Yes. You didn't know what happened.
2: No, I did not realize it was a gunshot.
6: You didn't know whether or not you had been hit from the side. or what?
2: I didn't know if I was going to be. I didn't know where the explosion was. I didn't know what made the noise. Right.
6: You didn't know what happened. And, of course, inside the vehicle, it's a loud noise, correct? Very loud. And and surely it, it startled you and it startled, you know, everybody, correct? Yes. Okay.
1: Danny Jo continues to answer questions walking Harvey and jurors through the final hours of Diane's life. The scene outside the hospital, inside the waiting room, in that conversation with Tex about her not being in the car that night.
6: It was just stupid, wasn't it?
2: That's why I leaned down and told him, Tex, I just drove you into the emergency room.
6: Right. And, 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 you know, that was it. And he said, I'm not telling you to lie, right? No. He didn't say that?
2: Not right then.
6: Okay, but he said that afterwards,
1: didn't he?
2: After I said, I can't lie. Sure, and he said,
6: I'm not telling you to do that.
1: Before finishing that day, Harvey returns again to the McIvers' marriage and the love they seem to share.
6: You described them as lovebirds, correct? Yes, yes. And that it was a relationship to be envied, correct? Correct. And they were always talking about how happy she is, correct? Yes. And that they were still, still um, attracted to each other, correct? Yes. And you describe like, you know, sometimes you thought they were just going to hop in the back seat of the car. Yes. Right? And that's exactly, that is exactly... What was the relationship that you observed between Tex and Diane on 9 25, 2016? Correct? Yes.
1: The next day, the third and final day of Danny Joe's testimony, Clint Rucker decides to bring up something we haven't heard about before. He asks her about a fight between Tex and Diane that took place months earlier when the McIvers were celebrating their godson Austin's 10th birthday at the ranch. Danny Joe says that night, Austin had burned his finger in the fire pit outside the McIvers' ranch. And when he woke up in pain, Danny Joe overheard Tex and Diane arguing.
5: And can you tell the jurors, um, how would you describe the argument?
2: It was very heated, and they Diane was saying that there was nothing wrong with him, and I was... I was focused mainly on Austin because I knew how bad his finger was hurting because I burned my finger before like that. And um, Diane was saying he was all right. Tex was trying to get Diane to be quiet and they um, kind of got it, they shoved each other and Tex kind of pushed Diane out of the bedroom and closed the door.
5: years that you had known them, had you personally ever seen that kind of interaction between them before? No. And um, can you tell the jurors, did you uh, speak to Diane about this incident later? No. Did you say anything to her at all? No. And um, is there a reason why you didn't?
1: They were both drinking. Danny Joe takes the stand for three days, 16 total hours of testimony. At one point, even telling the defense she'd been talking for so long, her memory was getting mushy. Prosecutor and 11 Alive legal expert, Latonia Hines, says through it all, there seemed to be something missing.
3: You expected to be able to get maybe a stronger feel from her of saying, I absolutely don't think that text meant to do this or whatever, but she just testified. It was it was interesting in her testimony. She didn't necessarily um, exonerate, in a sense, text. She just testified about what happened, but you knew that they were very good friends, um, all of them together. So I thought that was interesting. And then just seeing her demeanor walking around, um, I mean, she stayed quite a bit, even after her own testimony, um, she was obviously very concerned about the case. But I felt like for someone who was in the car and knew them all very well, if she felt that he did not have anything to do with the, you didn't necessarily hear her be like a vehemently saying, I know Tex would never do this.
1: After Danny Joe leaves the stand, the court hears Tex McIver's voice for the first time, but not because Tex himself is testifying. Rather, the jury hears a voicemail left for Danny Joe's husband, Tom, around the time Danny Joe hired an attorney to represent her.
0: The lady is Tex. Sir, let me just be plain. Danny's about to send me to prison. These are racist. This a the message, they're calling it right away. Y'all have no idea the problem is this is causing. It's innocent, but it's absolutely ridiculous for me. Please, please
1: call. Tom Carter testifies that Tex was hounding him, calling him six times in one day. Tom says Tex felt that Danny Joe hiring an attorney looked bad for him, and he wanted Tom and Danny Joe to come forward and tell the media Tex was innocent. Also in the witness box that day, an Emory police officer, one of the first officers on the scene when the SUV arrived at the hospital. He gives jurors another glimpse of Tex's actions inside the hospital after Diane was taken into surgery.
7: He told the court about a conversation he overheard in the waiting room between Tex and his friend Steve Maples, who is also a lawyer.
4: As he was talking, I don't remember the totality of the you know, conversation, but I remember him saying, uh, "What do I say? What's what? What's the plan?"
7: You remember him saying, "What do I say? What's the plan?" Yes. But you didn't hear what he said before
4: that. I
5: did not.
7: You didn't hear what he said after that. No. And
5: and
7: he's the gentleman who's at the emergency room whose wife has been shot, correct?
1: Yes. The next day, day eight the jury watches a 45-minute video of Tex being interviewed by police in the days following his wife's death. After leading detectives through the trip to the ranch and the events of the weekend, Tex describes the scene inside and outside of the SUV as they pulled off of the expressway that night. It's the first time we've heard an account of that night from Tex himself.
0: We went through an area of... I can describe my familiar area, but we went through an area I thought it was particularly dangerous. Okay. at night, I'd seen police vehicles there. It's, it's a route I take from my office to her office. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I see police vehicles there with blue lights on, and, and they're doing things with right. rifles. They're there. Uh, Remember they the Landmarks or anything? Uh, it was underpass. Okay. It was best time. You know, it was very dark, but it seemed to me it was and, That's one that has a particularly high population of homeless people. At least in the daytime. But at night, there's a lot of people there. And and I quickly said, uh, this is a big mistake and we're in a place that we don't belong. Right. And uh, of course, here we are. we homeless, new SUV and two women in the front seatbelt. So anyway, uh, they made a couple of turns and things were not going well and I said, we'll be on Piedmont shortly. And I said, yeah, I'd if you don't want, it, please hand me my gun. I was in the center console, uh, we've had some break-ins in our office where the only thing they're looking for seems to be a gun. And so I, in response to that, I had wrapped my gun in a Publix grocery sack. So well, okay. if you open the console, you have no clue what you're looking at. But flashlight and some stuff like that. So uh, Diane reaches in, pulls it out, uh, hands it back to me, and uh, by then we may have been on p Anyway, I'm relatively satisfied that we're out of that kind of area. Right. And I guess I just uh, laid back again and went to sleep. Okay. This toilet was kind of thing. I had the weapons I my left. Um, and they don't remember that's happening. Um, then Joe came to a stop, and, uh, anyway, I'm just, just time to wake up, and, uh, but she came to a stop, and, uh, I was handling the gun, uh, I did not realize it was in my lap, right. and, and it went off. Okay. Okay. Um, when uh, Jamie was looking for, or when she was making these turns, was she calling GPS? Was, was she listening to anything, or just from her? No. No, one's um, Diane's office is very near there. Diane's director. Oh, uh, correct. Okay. Right, right, left. So, so, so she knew where she went yeah, basically. Question. My dismay was, it seemed like every turn we made, this street was darker, and there were more people milling about. I mean, it was kind of being here on the back of your neck.
1: The detectives jumped back in with questions about the exact location of where the SUV had stopped when the gun was fired, before returning again to the seconds after Diane was struck with a bullet.
0: I immediately called out. I said, Is everybody all right? And uh, Diane and Joe said, yes. And Diane's head was kind of slanted. She said, I've been shot. It works to that effect. And I immediately Put my arms around her try to determine right, what was, how bad it was. And then I made a that for the emergency hospital. Their client of our firm, there have been. So we shot down two miles, crossed over Monroe, hit Morningside, went into the you know, and Joe driving with me telling her the words
1: continues with the events of that night, ultimately telling them about the scene at the hospital, even getting checked out himself in the Emory emergency room that night.
0: Yeah, I, I was not doing well. Okay. So, um, you know, I asked for help, for and uh, the chaplain said I had to go through the yeah. the
3: time.
0: Anyway, they processed me, in, you know, the ER to go about four different places. Right? I might see a doctor he described uh, some kind of anivane, Tell me what that is and I it before. It was one milligram I took that. It seemed mm-hmm. as if the edge of it, but I was up We didn't leave the hospital until uh, 8 o'clock.
1: On day nine of the trial, the prosecution focuses on one of the possible motives they introduced during their opening statement. Tex's flailing finances, and his dependence on Diane's income. There's also testimony from a family friend about a pair of Diane's boots and who was wearing them after her death. The McIvers had a massage therapist, Annie Anderson, who often traveled with them and gave them both massages, and she was seen wearing Diane's boots.
5: Did you notice anything in particular about what she was wearing? I, I did. And can you tell the jury, what did you notice?
0: She was wearing a, uh, a pair of uh, rain boots that... Uh, a pair of what? Rain, <clears throat> rain boots that uh, my uh,
4: fiancé and I had given uh, Diane for Christmas. And it struck him as kind of odd as what's going on here. Again, there's, there's no evidence that there's any affair going on or relationship, but all this stuff is sprinkled into the trial in front of the jury, and it all makes you kind of think, well, is there more to the story? What exactly is going on? Why is the masseuse in the boots? Is, is Tex MacGyver having an affair with this woman? Was this a potential motive to kill uh, uh, Diane? All of it kind of just thrown out there But then no follow-up evidence to to prove any of it, but it all just struck many as odd and and potentially incriminating against Tex as being another potential motive and another indication of whether or not he really and truly loved Diane.
1: After a weekend break, the trial resumes on Monday morning, and the McIvers' finances are again the focus.
7: On the stand this afternoon, Ann Schwall, a friend of Tex and Diane's, and the mother of their godson Austin, after Diane was shot by Texas' gun while riding home in September of 2016. Tex updated his will to leave nearly all of his estate to their 11-year-old godson. Schwal testified that Diane McIver had wanted to leave their Putnam County ranch to Austin, but her will had not been updated since 2006 before the child was born. She also said Tex told her he was updating his will on Diane's wishes. He told me that um, his biggest regret was that they did not
2: get a chance to change their wills, update their wills.
7: Tex McIver's new will also left a half a million dollars to his oldest son, who allegedly was not interested in the ranch, while completely leaving out his other two grown children.
1: The following day, Harry Hudson, an Atlanta attorney, is called to the stand to testify about estate planning he'd helped the McIvers with starting in 2009. As part of that process, he'd spoken to Tex and Diane about the ranch and their wills. He testifies that the process had been exceedingly difficult and they never reached a final decision together. During his testimony, he reads an email exchange between Tex and Diane from January 2011.
8: This is an email from Mr. MacGyver to Diane MacGyver on January 26, a couple minutes after Diane sent the email. And it says, upon what do we not... N.O.T. and caps agree.
5: And about five minutes later, what is the response from Diane McIver back to
1: Tex McIver?
8: That I am not gonna leave my half of the ranch to your estate. You are throwing money away on Friday morning, dot, dot, dot.
1: He's then asked to read another email, where Diane is responding to an email that Tex sent her about following up with the attorney on the estate planning process.
5: Could you read for the jury what Ms. McIver said in response to the email from Mr. McGovern.
8: Text, I just read this email, dot, 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 dot. Why are you going over there and wasting money until you and I decide what we're going to do upon our death? Dot, 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 for you to die before me and allow me to live there until I die and then turn it over to your estate is not an option for me.
4: Diane did not want her half of the ranch going to Tex, is this the motive?
1: Yes, this is the motive, but it's part of the motive. All of this has to do about money, and this is one part of
4: it. I don't think they proved it. It's not the motive because there is no motive because it's not a murder. Tex leaves almost everything to Austin in his new will that he wrote after the death of Diane. Is that game over for prosecutors?
7: Not at all. It's simply still again showing that he's manipulating and controlling the situation. He made the will change to make him look good.
4: Game was already over for the prosecutors. This is the last nail in the coffin. Diane could have taken the ranch anytime she wanted to. Is this better for the prosecution or defense? Much better for the defense because she never made a move to take the ranch.
1: She could have foreclosed. She never did. It helps the defense.
4: Is Tex McIver better off with Diane dead or alive? Better with her alive Mm -hmm. because she paid everything. There are no taxes he has to pay on what she pays.
1: He had a great life with Diane. She was paying for everything.
3: She was lending his money. He paid whenever he wanted to. He was much better off with her alive.
1: That week, there's more testimony about money that Diane loaned Tex a loan for $750,000 in 2005 and another one for $350,000 in 2011.
6: Tex McIver was required to pay the smaller loan in full by the end of 2017, or his Putnam County ranch would then be declared in jeopardy. The attorney for the U.S. Enterprises who handled much of Diane's legal paperwork told prosecutors today that Tex McIver approached him two days after Diane's death and was surprised by what he said.
0: I expected that at that point in time, he would tell me how sorry he was and how it was a terrible, tragic accident and say how much he loved Diane, but I never heard that.
6: Instead, he asked, uh, Tex McIver asked about her social security benefits saying his law firm cut back his work and he was having trouble making ends meet.
7: Today, testimony focused on the possibility of the couple's Putnam County ranch facing foreclosure. Those close to the McIvers say the ranch was Texas' pride and joy. He had owned the property since 1996 and added his wife Diane to the deed after they were married in 2005. The property was then put up as collateral for a $350,000 loan to Tex from one of Diane's companies. Diane had the option to foreclose on the property if Tex did not repay the loan by December of 2017, though her lawyer testified she would not have done that.
0: I'm not sure that that would have ever happened. Diane would have avoided that, I believe, at all costs to try to keep the marriage together, certainly. But uh, she had that right to foreclose.
7: Expert testimony this afternoon revealed there was no sign Diane was taking steps to foreclose on the property at the time she was shot in September of 2016.
1: The picture the prosecution is painting is clear. Tex was cash poor, and Diane was supporting Tex and their lifestyle, including that sprawling Putnam County ranch that Tex loved so
7: much. A forensic accounting expert testified that Tex was about $5,000 in debt when his wife died. The expert said he spent nearly $63,000 more than he brought in during the nine months before Diane was killed. There was more money going out than coming in and it wasn't going to savings accounts and it wasn't going to investment accounts. It was spent on living in the ranch. The defense says McIver's financial problems are exactly why he would not kill his wife intentionally, because he relied on her income to fund his lifestyle.
1: As prosecutors continue to build their case, they prepare to shift from the McIver's finances to Texas guns.
3: It means that he's all about guns, not one gun, two gun, three guns. You have a whole cache of them.
1: In the court, we'll hear directly from the McIver's massage therapist, Annie Anderson, about those boots and her relationship with Tex McIver.
4: Annie Anderson, the masseuse, testifies that that night she she spent in Tex's bedroom, sleeping on the floor, just keeping an eye on Tex, making sure he was OK. Did you ever touch him sexually
1: Never. Next time on Intent The Tex McIver Case.
3: Does this mean Tex is walking? Not necessarily. It means that they are considering it, but it doesn't mean that they've made their decision.
1: Intent The Tex McIver Case is a co production of Vault Studios and 11 Alive WXIA News in Atlanta. Will Johnson and Brian Weiss are executive producers with Vault Studios. Reed Redman produces, researches, and edits the podcast. Richard Humphreys at Tacoma Media in Silver Spring, Maryland, mixes and edits the show. You can find me on Facebook at Caitlin Ross11 Alive or on Twitter at Caitlin Ross One.